How are you doing? You okay? Yeah, good. It's uh, busy, busy times, I have to say, with uh, everything that's happening. And uh, I mean, I think we're uh, we're reaching some sort of normality, but it's uh, it's definitely yeah. a a different version of it right now. It is, isn't it? It's um, mixed reports you, you hear from people. I think there's a lot of a lot of positives as well. I I, I think I, a lot of people I certainly speak to are finding the remote working thing actually kind of pleasantly surprising and working very well. Um, don't know if it's probably the same for everybody, but uh, I'm more productive, I think. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, I think a lot of organisations. I mean, we we've, we've worked remotely for quite a long time. If I'm honest, yeah, yeah, can kind of work from wherever they need to be. But mm. do you know, what? I think there's um, there's nothing like being around humans you like. Um, mm. So mm. I think it probably depends on people's workplace. Some people are happy <laughs> not having to go into their office. Some people uh, <laughs> some people miss the people. But um, I, you know, I'm, I've always um, having been a consultant for you know nearly 15 yeah. years. Then uh, yeah. remote working is you know par for the course, really, in of terms course. of the setup. But um, uh, yeah, my kids are definitely starting to wonder why I'm here so much, you know. Yeah, <laughs> the, the novelty's wearing off. I think I'm getting the same. I'm being told to go away a lot more than, than previously <laughs> happened. <laughs> it, I mean, the first few times it's okay. It gets to you after a bit, doesn't it? <laughs> so you're based in Norwich, Glenn said. Is, is that right? I am, yeah. <clears throat> so whereabouts so, are you? Uh, so Thorpe St. Andrews. Um, right, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, okay. east, east of Norwich. So, uh, yeah. I mean, one one good thing is not having to get on that train to get to Liverpool Street. Um, so, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> But, That's always uh, a blessing. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, definitely there's a uh, there's a difference, I think, on people who are working from home. I mean, Norwich is pretty secluded anywhere where we are. You know, it's sort of mm. fields and trees and all sorts of kind of around us. So yeah. um, at least we can get out and go for a walk and get some sunshine and walk about. I think people who are, uh, I mean, we've got people at 11FS who are, you know, uh, three people in a flat type vibe. And that must sure. be really tough for people. So uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just a, 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 an intro question, really. So uh, uh, I guess a bit of background information in terms of your experience within the context of that sort of leadership piece. Um, sure. So how that kind of influences your your approach to the industry and, and your work at 11FS? Yeah, sure. I mean, my, my background before 11FS, so I've uh, been a management consultant. I ran uh, Gartner's mm. global digital banking practice. Mm. Uh, I ran the digital banking practice at Infosys, a big Indian offshoring company. Uh, before that, uh, at Lloyd's Banking Group with mm. various different leadership roles. Uh, and similarly at Aviva, uh, the uh, large global insurer. Um, leadership for me is always a, I mean, in interesting one. People talk about management roles and leadership. Yeah. Um, I think I've always sort of taken a, a view that leaders are more important than managers, if that makes sense, because Absolutely. they sort of come from everywhere around the organization. It's more about how people approach things. Um, I've often, I, I go back to the saying about, uh, it's not really what you do that matters most, it's the way in which you do it, which, uh, mm. you know, uh, depending on how old you are, it's either Banana Rama song or it's one from the <laughs> 1920s. So uh, for, for, for me, the way is so much more important. And the, mm. the way that I've picked up uh, through that career, uh, good experiences with leaders and managers, uh, and pretty bad experiences with leaders and managers, has really yeah, helped yeah. me shape what my view on that is. Um, I think great leaders are uh, as consistent as they can be for everybody else, mm. um, but are incredibly contextual. Um, mm -hmm. I think the the best people realize that every individual is different and therefore leads with the levers that actually are most applicable to the person that they're talking to and, and leads them as an individual. Um, yeah, sure. I, often, I often kind of go back and say, I think I learned more about leadership 
through playing team sports than I ever did yeah. in the business world because you know you learn very quickly in there it's it's not just physiology it's psychology um, and you really yeah. have to treat every individual as an individual to understand what motivates them in order to get the best performance out of them um, and actually I mean how we've set up 11FS um, I brought many of the, uh, the 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 learnings from playing I think I played eleven different county sports, uh, so uh, well, I, mean, I have I have I have all of the the fancy <clears throat> ties to uh, to go through with that one. So, um, but from from my perspective, you know, taking that sports mentality into business has allowed us to build this company that we've got. Sure, and 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 so I guess translating that to eleven FS, obviously, I picked out that kind of the, you know the greatest minds in fintech phrase that that you kind of use on LinkedIn and and so on. I suppose in terms of leading those kind of people in some ways that that's that's easier but 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 does that change how you approach managing people who are who are really knowledgeable and experienced and and you know can effectively do their job without that leadership as a way yeah i mean i, I think everybody regardless of how smart they are i think needs leadership but the context yeah. of leadership very much changes depending on people's experience um mm. i mean i always say i'm a i'm a macro manager rather than a micro manager um, and actually, I, I believe in macro management over micro management because I mm. think, especially when you're leading people who are, you know, not just uh, very experienced but incredibly smart, then things that people would need to do for people who have got less experience or mm. show less impetus uh, mm. would just wouldn't work in the context of, of doing it for really really smart people. So sure. whether it's you know Jason Bates who co-founded Starling and Monzo, or whether it's Naz who was you know head of risk at RBS, or uh, Lida Glyptis who's run um, big departments over in Qatari National Bank or uh, BM, uh, BNY Mellon, um, these people don't need me for um, uh, subject matter expertise in the way that yeah, they do. Yeah. But actually, in terms of leadership, I don't think it's that. I think good leaders set what the the bar is and actually mm. what the floor is for mm. behaviors on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, they're more, uh, particularly when you're talking about um, very, very high caliber um, individuals, it's much more of a, akin to a uh, conductor in an orchestra than it is necessarily a... Uh, and uh, a uh, sergeant major in the army. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I say we are much more like the special forces than the army because mm. actually, with the caliber of people that we have, and actually, I think you get the best out of people by setting objectives and setting direction for them, but leaving gaps for them to actually use their own personal understanding and take personal responsibility for the decisions that they're making to achieve those things. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, this is where I think, you know, sports mentality comes in even greater because mm. you know you've got i don't know cristiano ronaldo on a on a football pitch then the way in which the manager of that team needs to uh work is is very specific to make sure that yeah. they get the best out of them um and across 11fs with you know nearly 200 people now in the organization i'd say across all of the disciplines that we've got we've got 200 cristiano ronaldos across the across the setup <laughs> which uh uh you know is a is a great thing in terms of bringing the focus about mm. So it just requires a very different level of uh, management and skill set to manage those people. Sure. And 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 what about the the, the financial services sector then uh, specifically? I mean, in in terms of culture, I, I mean, it's you know, it's fair to say that the sector is is pretty disruptive and, and evolving at a pretty rapid rate. I mean, in in terms of how you instill a culture within a business and you're reacting to that. I mean, is there anything specific about working in this industry uh, in in that kind of regard? 
Yeah, I mean, culture is a. I think culture, if I'm honest with you, is 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 our secret sauce. Um, right. Uh, and actually, I think it's such a it's such a misunderstood thing. You know, people think about culture as this um, sort of um, <clears throat> ethereal, uh, nice to have. That after they've delivered their business objectives, they'll make sure that everybody gets a birthday card or a cookie. Uh, you know, it becomes something about um, copying Google or, you know, looking yeah. at what Facebook have done and maybe allowing people to wear jeans on a Wednesday. Um, mm. And culture isn't that. I mean, if you think mm. about culture more about performance management, then mm. actually, and I don't mean performance management in the sense of, you know, every year we're going to give you an appraisal, but actually across all businesses, people are typically the most expensive resource. You know, this mm. is the most significant cost across your organization. Uh, and most people spend so little time prioritizing the creation of the the tactics and the strategy and the culture that actually mm. ensures that you get the best out of the people in that organization. Um, you know, we say our, our, our vision is to change the fabric of financial services, but our, yeah, yeah. our mission is purely about unleashing talent. Um, mm. How do we bring together a group of people who are really, really smart? but allow them to create the environment that will get the best work that they've ever done. Um, because if we can do that, then actually they will be more successful. And as an organization, by proxy, we will be more successful because of that. Um, mm. And that's really what we've we've done, you know, over the last four years is, uh, you know, we, we practice very much power to the edges in terms of decision making and uh, being able to uh, move things forwards and allow everybody to make decisions in the organization. And we mm -hmm. focus very, very heavily on making sure that actually the, the culture that we establish creates that environment <clears throat> where people are empowered to do the best work that they've ever done. Sure, sure. Uh, and I guess that culture, that, that sort of mindset is, is driven, as you say, by, by that sort of overarching strategy in a way, which I'd like to move on to. I mean, the, the, the digital financial services, only 1% finished kind of phrase. I mean, a, a really interesting one, obviously sort of sets out your stall very clearly. Um, I guess as a kind of starter for 10, could you could you sort of expand on what, I mean, I understand what this, the phrase means, obviously, but can you sort of give your view on it and, and a bit more about that statement as a concept, how you sort of quantify that and, and where I guess you see the key issues that, that mean we're only at 1%? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I should say there there is not a uh, there's not ten thousand surveys behind this that make this statistically <laughs> significant. Of course, um, of course. But that but that is the point. Um, actually, it is really when you look at the um, you know the uh, the narrative that we see in the industry is mm. um, having spent time at big organisations, having spent time in uh, those people who are serving those organisations as well. Um, there are large parts of the industry that are just fundamentally broken. Um, right. There are large parts of it that are uh, fundamentally decades and decades out of date now. Mm. Um, and the difficulty is, is that the whole ecosystem within financial services has, <clears throat> has come a long way. But actually, in order to keep up with the market that's shifting, you know, we've got organizations, you know, in this crisis that we're seeing now with the pandemic yeah, yeah. around Corona, we're seeing organizations sort of furiously trying to find people with COBOL experience, you know, uh, mm -hmm. and, and this um, this issue um, has only been exacerbated by the needs to make rapid change. So when we say digital banking is 1% finished, what we, what we really mean is that with all of the advancements around regulation or technology or 
customer requirements or competitive landscape that fundamentally the the journey that we're on with financial services has got 99% to go there yeah. is huge amounts of opportunities huge amounts of potential to move this industry forwards um and actually the 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 interesting thing is that the the big incumbent financial services players are really at pretty significant risk of being left behind because mm. uh, what is digital and what is digitized um, are so fundamentally different things at this stage. Yeah. And, and with many of them having come from a, you know, an analog world where, you know, branch was key and telephony then was, you know, an extension of that. Mm. Digital has become this sort of, again, a, um, a period of evolution that they've, they've sort of done from a veneer level but when it comes yeah, yeah. to the, the 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 underlying underpinning capability that sits underneath that, whether it's technologically or operationally, um, they really run the risk of being massively left behind. And mm. um, you know what what I think has been fascinating over the last couple of weeks with with everything that's happened with with Corona is uh, when really forced to do something like, let's say, deploy thousands and thousands of people working remotely, yeah. they can make it happen. Um, yeah. yeah. So what I think sort of developed during, you know, from 2008 and the financial crisis was, you know, most big organizations have just been in their shell for a very long period of time. Um, okay. So, but for us, like say, digital banking being 1% finished is, it sounds like an indictment, but really it is, uh, it's more a, um, an aspiration that for the amount of money, for the billions of pounds that are being spent, um, we should be doing a lot better to serve customers in whole different types of ways. Of course, and and uh, you know the, the the sort of digital as a veneer uh, phrase is, is is an interesting one, and I guess that's where your kind of consultancy services and 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 that sort of fun you know there's a lot on the on the website where you talk about sort of getting that fundamental infrastructure right. I mean, is that an essential step for any incumbent or indeed perhaps any fintech that that, that really wants to truly embark on this digital journey? Do you think really get those fundamentals right in the first instance? Definitely, I, th I think there's a I think there's a confluence of forces there though, because um, mm. really, um, I mean, people talk about technology, you know, technology debt or legacy technology as yeah. like the, the major inhibitor, um, mm. but I honestly don't think it is the major inhibitor because mm -hmm. again, with the the right culture within those organisations, then anything is surmountable, right? Um, mm. But actually, it's probably a confluence of technology debt, cultural debt, and operational debt. Um, mm -hmm. You know, none of those inhibits people's aspirations. Um, but actually, I think what you see is, you know, <clears throat> banks spending billions and billions of pounds, having the right aspiration, having the right vision, but just the inability to actually get to that vision. Um, right. I mean, the reason why I say that this is an industry problem, not just a bank problem is, I mean, many of the people who support organizations to do those things, um, in many instances are like doctors who don't want people to get well. Uh, right. You know, you're you're sort of able to uh, make a project last as long as you, you want it to do. Then yeah, sure. that for me is a, an industry problem that really sort of needs to be resolved. Um, many, m very much of, of actually big organizations really need people with the skill sets and experience to know what should and shouldn't be doing. Um, right. But a lot of this is really, you know, other industries that we can learn from, you know, technology industries, even the betting industry is uh, an industry that financial services can can look at. Um, I mean, our CTO we used to run uh, the technology side of things for Betfair uh, mm. and, you know, uh, okay. lo lovingly jokes quite often, uh, you know, betting and banking isn't that much different. It's probably just a different <laughs> license uh, <laughs> because actually when you look at what they're both doing, both of them are managing risk. Uh, mm. It's just actually 
betting has continually looked at how it reinvents and, and uh, continues to evolve its technology, its operational capability. And these things are so heavily linked together. Um, you know, so many banks are looking at APIs and, uh, mm. you know, uh, open banking or microservices kind of purely as a technology problem. Um, yeah. But really the, you know, the manifestation of your your culture and your operation is really uh, beyond that sort of skin deep piece. Uh, it's hard to do continuous testing, continuous integration, and you know deploy a hundred times a day unless you've got the technology underpinning it that actually allows those things to happen. So mm. um, it would be great if there was the one silver bullet that would fix all of this for people. Um, but I do come back to that point I made earlier on, which is it is fundamentally the way in which financial services operates not just the what that they do now it's definitely okay. the what but if yeah. you change the way the what will change naturally as well okay so i guess this isn't just as you say it's an industry-wide problem it's not really something that that's just inherent to incumbents or or, or legacy institutions right it, it, it's would you is it, is it fair mean, to say it's it's most industry participants in some way or yeah i'd say um you know <clears throat> uh culture has a way of um ossifying over time Mm. Um, and I think it's I think it's easy to see that, um, you know, in any slices of financial services, the newer organizations who are able to either keep more of an entrepreneurial spirit. You know, if mm. I look at somebody like BlackRock as an example, mm. you know, not uh, in comparison to some of the players that they're up against in this market are, uh, you know, a, a toddler in comparison to the, you know, the uh, OAPs of the industry. Mm. And because of that, they've got a culture that actually is continually evolving and continually moving forwards. Um, if you look at a player like Investec as a good example as yep. well, you know, they've kept a very entrepreneurial spirit, which means they uh, they sort of ask why not rather than why. Sure. Um, whereas actually, if you look at some of the big incumbent organizations, they sort of ossified around, uh, I mean, every every company works on these types of silos. The thing that made them successful to start with, they ossify around. Yep. And when the world shifts and the market condition shifts, then the thing that they were great at is no longer really the thing that the industry needs. Mm. Now, in finan mm. most financial services, this is uh, this is people and it is branches. Yeah, um, right. yeah. And actually, digital was merely invested in as another distribution channel, which is why we see many organizations treat it like a completely separate thing that was happening. Um, you know, digital is everything. It's not just yeah. a distribution channel. Well, that's it. That's interesting, actually, isn't it? Because, you know, a, a lot of the times, particularly with the sort of incumbent institutions, you see that they kind of park digital in one corner through innovation labs or, or, or you know, a, a smaller kind of startup uh, organization within the organization. I mean, it, I'm guessing in the long term that that's not really the best approach because, as you say, digital should should be prevalent across the entire organization. Right. Um, and, and where do you sort of where do you sort of stand on on that collaboration aspect between incumbents and fintechs? I mean, do, do you think that's a sort of future path that that will bring benefit to the industry, or, or do you think that incumbents really must digitize every aspect? Yeah, I think I think um, for for me, I mean, partnerships as an entirety, um, mm. I think is a major step forward for mm. for big incumbent organisations because um, I think you know from people like Simon Sinek or to all the way mm. to Clayton Christensen, and you know, it's commonly understood that making this type of change mm -hmm. is really really difficult you know mm -hmm. we shouldn't underplay how sure. difficult it is if you're the ceo of a bank looking down across your entirety of your estate changing the thing that has made you successful yeah. or risking your business today's business model for tomorrow's success is mm -hmm. a very difficult thing to do 
Um, and this is why we're sort of seeing lots of different people um, making different plays in order mm-hmm. to evolve the organization, move them forward. So, you know, partnerships are definitely a way forward, I think, because the ability to, um, I mean, culture is such a, again, such an odd thing, um, mm-hmm. because really it's it's just the makeup of all of your individuals. Uh, you know, how they all are, how they all act on a day-to-day basis denotes how your organization responds to change. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like a shoal of sardines. Uh, you can't say which one is quite leading that thing, but yeah, you know yeah. that they're all moving in, in unison yeah, to sure. a certain degree. Um, so for me, the you know, the, the beauty of partnering with other organizations is it's very similar to the, the old thing of, uh, you know, uh, you've got an old dog, buy a new pup. And actually, mm. they'll probably get a new spring of life in terms of mm. learning new ways or jogging around the, <clears throat> the, uh, the garden a little bit more merrily. And with those big incumbent organizations, uh, learning that new way is mm. critical for them sort of unlocking the potential that they have. I mean, we're now in a situation where with advancements around technology and, and process and structure that with 50 people who are really, really good, you can yeah. do what 500 people used to be required to do even three or four years ago. Um, so for many, that is a a cultural and a process leap, which mm-hmm. just doesn't compute given the frame of reference that they really, really have. So yeah, whether yeah. it's partnering with an organization to create capability outside of the organization, or whether it's, to your point, creating a, a challenger to your own organization, like we've done with people in Hong Kong and the US mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Uh, and the UK, um, actually, I think there are various different plays now because what people are, I mean, it's that definition of madness, right? People have course, tried yeah. tried it the same way five or six or seven different times, established mm. that big transformation program and got to the end of it and realized either the market context has dramatically changed and the thing that they've delivered doesn't mm-hmm. meet those needs or mm-hmm. that they never really meet their action with their aspiration. Um, yeah. So it's, again, I, I should say, it isn't like this is not hard, um, but it's a lot easier if you don't try and change 300,000 people in an organization overnight. Um, yeah. And that's why many of these things, in, in many instances, it's starting something new and scaling it back into the organization mm-hmm. uh, is a much, much better approach, in, in definitely in my opinion and my experience. Okay. So, so just taking it back a little, I guess, and, and we, we were sort of dancing around those questions, but if you're looking at the sort of market context and, and the key drivers of change, uh, I mean, I guess, firstly, what, how urgent would you sort of say is the need for digital reformation in the first instance? And, and, and what, what, what do you or what does 11FS consider to be the real key drivers of, of change and evolution in the market at the moment? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'd say technology is advancing faster and being commoditized quicker than ever before. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, the best example I always kind of go to on that one is, um, you know, there's there's many big incumbent organizations who are and have been spending the last five to seven years talking mm-hmm. about cloud deployment and cloud strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, the reality of it is, is when you uh, when you really look at any startup, no startup starts with a plan of trying to figure out where their three data centers are going to be. Um, sure. the, con- the context of the industry of where you would start a business today as opposed to where you would start a business 30 years ago is just fundamentally different. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing I, I'd sort of say is while fintech um, has really created a, a narrative of and an urgency of change given its you know its march on march on the industry, you know we've mm-hmm. seen players like Monzo, uh, you know in three and a half years generate five million customers. 
Yep. Um, you know, to put that in context, um, First Direct took 30 years to get to about 1.4 million customers. Mm. So the speed of change in the industry is exponential at this stage mm. in terms of uh, the impact that that can have. Um, but I'd say the the biggest one, if you're uh, if you're the CEO of a bank right now, is not uh, you know how nice the the challenges uh, apps look or anything along that. It's a fundamental squeezing of of your um, your uh, profit margins, um, okay. and that really being driven by unit economics in your back office. Um, yep. If you look at most big incumbent organisations right now, uh, you know it's costing them somewhere between maybe 170 and 250 pounds to run a current account. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a, a huge piece, especially with yeah. margins and profits being taken out of those things. Um, and most of that is because um, the technology and the operational capability in the back office just cannot sustain them. Um, and due to you know many monoliths that sit in the back office from a technology stack perspective, due to mergers and acquisitions over the last 30 or 40 years, um, it's very, very difficult for them to do anything about that. So, sure. you know, you've got a, a burgeoning uh, operational cost. You've mm-hmm. got challenges coming into the market who are much more operationally efficient, are much more nimble to make changes uh, really, really quickly. Yeah. Um, and all of this uh, combined with a regulatory climate, a, reg- a regulatory pressure that's actually reducing the bar of entry into financial services rather than defending you in the way that it used to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're the CEO of a bank right now, that's the thing that's worrying you. Um, right. Okay. And it's and it's a bizarre sort of confluence of these pressures. Um, but really, I mean, when it cost you 150 and the blue one next to you 160 and the yeah. other one 190, <clears throat> things were all pretty relevant, you know, yeah. uh, and relative rather. Um, and actually what we've sort of seen is a real resetting of what good looks like within financial okay. services, both okay. in terms of um, customer service. I mean, for yep. almost for a decade, First Direct has been at the top of any customer satisfaction or NPS rating. And now it will be Starling, Monzo, sure, Revolut. Sure. Um, when it comes to unit economics and what it should cost to run a, an account or even what it should cost to acquire a customer, these things are being fundamentally reset now because mm. it's no longer spending a hundred million pounds with an ad agency, Mad Men style, to make sure you've got that TV yeah, yeah. advert around Coronation Street. It's about actually how do you use social media more intelligently to build a brand that people love and belong mm-hmm. to, um, and all of these dynamics of it is you know facilitated by this wonderful thing called the internet. Yeah, sure, and. Um... I mean, I, I, I guess, uh, and where does the consumer come into it? Obviously, con- consumer and, and customer expectations evolving at, at, at a massive rate as well. Again, probably yeah. due to technologies that we use and being glued to our mobiles 24-7 and things like that. Obviously, the fintechs and the newer players can kind of, is it fair to say, offer a more personalized service because of perhaps some of the technologies that they're using? So, so how is that kind of customer demand driving change uh, for banks, for, for those in the sector? And, and what really would you say are the key ways of kind of dealing with that and, and managing that change from a consumer perspective? Yeah, I mean, from a from a consumer perspective, I'd say, um, you know, there's, there's probably two, two main drivers for that. I'd say mm. uh, trust <clears throat> and control. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, on the trust side of things, it's, it's really post-crisis. Everything that happened in 2008, the financial services industry was really, really heavily hit when it came to trust. I mean, I think people trust banks not to disappear with their money, but they don't trust them to do the right thing by them. Um, 
And actually, I think if you look at the control side of things, people want to feel empowered. They want to feel mm. in control of their money and their situation. Mm-hmm. And actually just the, the context of banking during the last decade of, you know, go into a branch, queue up neatly, wait to mm. see that nice man or woman in a suit to ask if you might please have some money. The context of that is very much shifting. Yeah. Uh, and and the given the choice that consumers now have, consumers are in more control than they ever have been around access to credit, access to savings, access mm. to lending. Um, so the the narrative of the industry of you know um, you know I'm in charge I'm I'm the bank and I'm a trusted you know bowler hat wearing you know mm. Mary Poppins esque kind of narrative <laughs> um, has very much moved to consumer control because yeah. at everybody's fingertips is twenty four seven access to a plethora of organisations who fundamentally want to serve them as customers. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'd say the other thing is, and this is this is really sort of combined with. Um, you know, again, since since sort of post 2008, just the risk frameworks and controls that have been built into large incumbent organizations has led mm. many of them to uh, not really communicate with people like people. Um, I mean, right. if you look at the uh, communications on websites or emails or, you know, it, it is fearful of the regulation rather mm. than communicating to humans like humans mm-hmm. um, and actually what um, many of the new challenges have come in is really just dispel a lot of these things it's how do we how do we ensure that actually consumers are really in control how do we make them really aware of what their financial standing is 24 yep. 7 365 how do we just talk to them as human beings because wouldn't that be nice uh, you know wouldn't that just be a a better way of actually communicating to people because if you're trying to create trust um if the only time you communicate with them is that there's something negative well mm. it's, i mean if if that only happened with your friends you're not going to be friends with those guys for very long sure. are you yeah um, and then when it comes to um uh, it comes to the you know the other elements then i think fundamentally what we're seeing fintech and, and the challenges do is is really just rekindle services within financial services mm. um i think beyond um Beyond the the big incumbents, this is really what people are trying to do because mm-hmm. what people want to do with their banking is mainly not engage with it, but mm-hmm. when they have to, they want to do it in the most friendly, easiest to consume way that they can do. That actually means they get the best outcome. Yeah, um, you know, banking is boring. Nobody cares about it <laughs> until you do and until you need it. But when you do and when you need it, you want it in a, a way that actually you are the customer, the service should to be to you rather than uh, rather than the other way around. So, I mean, it, it is a it is a fundamental flip of the fa- of what financial services is really about. Um, but I think it's a very welcome one and actually a, a one that was really speared by uh, everything that the Bank of England and the FCA did post financial crisis. Um, you know, many, many people don't really know this, but mm-hmm. the the lowering of the barriers of entry and the uh, increasing of, of competition in the marketplace yeah. is because of what the FCA and the Bank of England did over the, over the last, uh, okay. you know, uh, 12 years at this stage. Um, mm-hmm. And that's really why consumers on the street are benefiting from better financial services than we've ever had. Right, and 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 that that continuing to to improve the the service for the consumer, you know, talking to people like people, the the the, the offering a plethora of service and so on. I mean, is is that a, or do you see that as being a sort of technology led thing, or is that a, a change in culture? Is is that a change in how I guess leaders and and those working for banks and incumbents and fintechs 
actually go, can really consider the operating model? Or, or? I, think, I, I think it's um, I think technology definitely facilitates it. But if I'm honest with you, I think it's a for big incumbent organizations, it's it's kind of rekindling the love of customer uh, customer yeah. experience. Okay, uh, and and I don't mean customer experience just in the way of you know wireframing and that type of stuff. Mm. But but fundamentally, do you understand the day to day? You know the brutal realities of day to day life for for mm. most consumers. Um, you know <clears throat> most uh, the gap between what financial products are being given to people mm. and the things that they really have to do on a day by day, month by month basis uh, has widened quite yeah. quite significantly. Um, and when you start talking to consumers, the the gap between those two things is is amazing. You know, it's in really enlightening. You know, mm. the, from weird and wonderful mental arithmetic that people are doing to the most elaborate spreadsheets you've ever seen in your life. Um, you know, this is managing households or it's managing businesses. Yeah, um, yeah. And really, fintech is is just coloring in that gap with learning from what it is that people really need to do on a day-to-day -day basis and providing that service rather than just providing a current account or a credit card or a, sure. or a savings pot. Um, sure. It's about the service that actually makes people better financially, um, and I and I think in the big organisations again, it's it's the it's the shifting landscape, it's the the change of the the food chain when it comes to uh, you know really what uh, what is it that they are there to do. Um, yeah. If you're really there to serve consumers, you need to understand them. Um, yeah, yeah. And the reality I think of you know many a boardroom and many a uh, you know a bank executive is uh, it's very difficult to really understand the the day-to-day -day life of a, a mum with three kids who you know, yeah, is trying to make ends yeah. meet. Um, so actually getting back into the mentality, getting back into the psyche of, of consumers is, is critical because, I mean, again, no bank started by offering 3,000 products and having 15 different mm -hmm. business lines. They all started by the love and passion of really trying to fix a very specific problem. And then 300 years of success has led us to where we are today. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah, interesting. Um, <clears throat> perhaps you could tell me in a in a in a more broad sense about this the sort of eleven FS proposition and and within the context of those issues and those challenges that we've we've been discussing, how you work with those players in the industry to really sort of work around these challenges and and I guess fill that ninety nine percent that's remaining from the one percent, as it were. Sure. I mean, uh, with. Um... You know, with that as a backdrop, really, I mean, we've been spending the last four years uh, with various different players from mm. gigantic technology players to uh, big incumbent organizations to startups. Um, mm. You know, we've built out um, a uh, proposition over in Hong Kong with standard charts mm. called MOX. Uh, we built um, with uh, Alison Rose at NatWest uh, Metal, which is a challenger SME mm. account. Um, over in the US, we've actually got in beta a US retail account as well. Uh, and we're doing this with, uh, like I say, technology players, uh, somebody yep. like Grab over in Singapore um, to build out their, uh, their current account proposition as well. Because actually what we show to people is if you take startup mentalities and methodologies, if you take the things that the, the fintech has shown that there is possible, but apply mm -hmm. those things to apply those principles, those processes, the way to do it um, yeah. to big incumbent organizations. There are quicker, cheaper, better ways of actually getting this stuff to market. Um, okay. And in many organizations, that that's really what we're doing. We often lend our culture as a company 
to these things to really spark that creativity back into those organizations sure. um, and then tend to that as much as we would tend to anything else because uh, again for us culture is is the fundamental um, if you get that right if you have that focus then actually the talents that you can bring in the talents that you can maximize really takes you to the places that you need to to mm. serve the customers in a different way so yeah i mean the the other side of the business that we've got at um uh, 11fs is a thing called 11fs foundry which yeah, is actually yeah. a, a partnership that we've got with uh, really sort of putting our, our money and our, our action where our mouth is on this one, which is um, the technology in banking just requires, uh, it's not about a, uh, a, a rethink, it's, it's about starting from scratch. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if you really want to deploy cloud services and uh, you know, microservices, if you want to be able to do uh, you know, continuous testing, continuous integration in a real way, then breaking down these monoliths that have been built by, like say, success, yes, through yep. merger and acquisition. But unless you rationalize all of those things, you're never gonna be in a situation where you address that operational mm. cost problem. Um, and for us, this is what Foundry set up to do. Um, DMB have been a phenomenal partner. For anybody who doesn't know, they're uh, uh, the largest bank in the, the Nordic region. Um, and um, they have a, a very similar view of the, uh, the future as we do, which is, yep. Um, consolidating a lot of the back office capability to ensure that actually cost efficiencies can be passed through to consumers. Mm. Um, and they, uh, we've been building through value chains with those guys, starting with unsecured credits and current accounts and mm-hmm. working through all of the elements to ensure that actually we, uh, we help those guys really get to be truly digital. Yep. And and uh, the, on the foundry aspect, so you talk about rather than a rethink, you know, the complete restructure and a restart almost. I mean, is that daunting for for those players that, that you sort of that that proposition goes to? I mean, is that something that that you think is inherently challenging to accept? Um, huge, and that's why yeah. we're in this in this situation almost. I mean, it's a huge, huge problem, and it's a huge thing to address. And it's it's yeah. not the it's not the um, uh, it's not just the uh, a rational side of things. Mm. Because I mean, if you think <clears> in a big organization. You know, take HSBC as an example, yeah. or Barclays, whoever. Um, you know, you're talking about maybe seventy different systems across yeah, all yeah. of the things that they're doing, and across those seventy systems, there's probably eighteen to twenty layers in them, and each mm. of those layers is probably a different service provider that you've got involved mm. in it. So your ability wow. to deal with this entire picture is a procurement nightmare of all of the contracts of all of these things and the ROI that you've invested in to put them in together, like it would have to be the equivalent of a, you know, the entirety of the solar system aligning for a split second, uh, (laughs) your ability to deal with it just on a procurement level. Um, And this is why, I mean, we're in a, this is why we're in the situation that we're at is um, in an organization of any scale where you've got multiple CIOs and CTOs and, uh, you know, CEOs, Mm each with their own different agenda, each with their own different uh, investment potential, then the complexities of actually addressing these problems Mm. is insane. Um, Let alone when you start to get to the more emotional sense, which is uh, most people have been there when bad decisions have been made about technology or investment, or they're still waiting for the ROI from the thing that they put in three years ago. So um, by no means is this is an easy thing to do. But that's why the cleanness of many organizations to start something new is allowing them to address wholesale all of these problems. Um, you know, there's the, the, the old um, 
kind of adage of look if you've got 85 different standards and you deploy and create in a new uh, a new stack hey presto you've got uh, 86 standards right um but um the reality that we're seeing with the changes that uh we've been putting in place in organizations is uh it doesn't really matter anything at all until you start decommissioning things uh and when you can start to decommission right. old systems and remove complexity remove insane amounts of risk that these organizations are dealing with um then actually you can start to show the real impact of what doing it in a different way actually matters um you know i can't stress that enough the way in which you set these things yeah. up is so much more important than anything that you're doing because i mean if you look at um, a comparison you know monzo in the market have adam you know consistently said they can go from a good idea to it being live in the market in three mm. or four weeks mm. now to put that in context um you probably couldn't even deploy something i mean you probably couldn't even get the meeting together yeah. to understand who was responsible for fixing the thing in a big organization um, right. let alone build it let alone deploy it um wow. you know these yeah. guys have got the technology and the operations to deploy a hundred times a day um and because of that it fundamentally changes the risk in their systems because mm. if everything is small then the risk that everybody takes every deployment is very small mm. with a big bank with the technology that they've got the processes the governance everything is big therefore yep. if something goes wrong it's really wrong uh, sure. and given the technology it's really wrong for a long time to until they can actually resolve it yeah yeah i see so 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 i mean it, it, in terms of that that journey and embarking on that journey i mean what does it look like in a time scale? I mean, it, it seems obviously from the things you were just saying, incredibly challenging. I mean, <clears throat> you know, we, we don't want to keep dwelling on this one percent because, like you said, it's it's not it's not a a hard and fast thing. But I mean, in terms of that journey, in terms of Eleven FS's vision, I guess. I mean, how long is that journey? Is that sort of transformation journey for for those larger players? I mean, and and how difficult and challenging do you think it will be? Yeah, I mean uh, the 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 great thing is, um, and and you know wanting to wanting to sort of give some positivity is yeah, um, yeah of course <laughs> is this is you know this is the the greatest time to actually make these changes mm. because these problems have always occurred, but your mm. ability to actually address them given yeah. the advancements that we've seen around technology is is more more significant than ever, mm. and it's not really just about the fact that you can do it; it's the yeah. fact that you're seeing people in the market actually achieve these things. Mm -hmm. uh, so to me, you know, whether it's the changes that somebody like Alison at NatWest has made to really invest in building the new business. I mean, her her point has always been, you know, do I should I wait till somebody comes along and disrupts us or should I put in the time and put in the work to disrupt ourselves? And yeah. that I think is the the major change that you're seeing, you know, very similar to the CEO at Standard Charter, the CEO over at Bank of America, you know, mm. all of these organizations now are realizing that if they wait to the point where it's too late, then mm. it will be too late. Yeah. Um, so, um, so for me, I, I think the the opportunity for these organizations is is there. But if a startup can start up and scale to five million in you know a very very mm. short period of time, this gives them the hope that actually they can change all of their real problems when it comes to operational cost and everything that's there. I mean, yeah. if you if you gave me NatWest right now with an operational cost of Monzo, that would mm -hmm. be the most profitable bank on the planet. Right. Um, cool. And actually, if you could make those changes, which for us, there's no, I mean, there's no witchcraft to this at all. You know, technology is not sort of magic where you've got to, yeah. you know, yeah, rub yeah. your head and, and do it, you know, 
it's all there right exactly yeah but and it's all it's not just all there it's all obvious yeah it's like it's like getting fit uh Mm. everybody knows what it takes to be fit and be healthy it's Mm. like do exercise it's like eat well uh you know burn more calories than you're taking in Mm. the reality of doing it is hard um so really what we're seeing is um actually ceos that we talk to have now realized the way that they were doing it before just isn't going to get them to what they need to do. Mm. Uh, And many now are embarking on this change. Um, But the thing that they have to do is work hard. Um, You can can work hard in the wrong direction and not achieve these objectives. Mm. Working hard in this new direction is what Mm. unleashes the potential within their organization and definitely has been what's unleashed the potential in ours. Which I guess is what brings us back to why culture is so important and really underpins it probably more than any of the technologies that, that we talk about and, and that are thrown around. You know, when you're talking about digital disruption, it really does seem that that, that underpinning culture is essential, right? Which yeah, is, is I mean, what I, 11FS because... kind of professes and, and says to its its customers, I suppose. 100%. 100%. Yeah. It, it's the cu- culture in any organization makes change sustainable. Mm. Um, and if we're talking about big gaps between how you think about consumers, how you think Mm. about technology or operations. Um, It's not just about bringing in smart people who know how to do that. It's Mm. about learning and being in a situation where you understand that yourselves. Mm. I mean, we talk a lot about uh, in our role, it's not about coming in and doing it for people. It's about teaching them the way that these things should be done. Uh, You know, more like a personal trainer than a a consultant, really, Mm. because uh, I mean, if we came in and did all the work, then actually it wouldn't be sustainable for these organizations. So uh, us lending our culture to many of these startup operations means actually it gives them the feeling and the warmth of how Mm -hmm. impactful it can be when you do it in a different way, which actually then leads to our culture permeating their culture and creating a new way of doing it within their company. Um, And then, like, say, that sustainability, either from a a process or a resourcing or any type of process means that we don't need to be involved forever which is good for us and it's very good for them as well Mm. so 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 just finally david i don't want to take up too much of your time i I know we're getting to to the end of the hour i mean in terms of the future for 11fs then obviously you you will evolve as the industry evolves and the market evolves i mean where do you sort of see the business and and what what are your intentions for the business certainly within the in the next sort of couple of years or so in the next three to five years let's say i mean how are you looking to evolve the business? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, keeping up with demand is like the challenge to a certain degree. Yeah. We've got uh, more work than we sort of know what to do with, really, in terms of mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, where we are in an industry. And actually, people kind of really waking up to this to this change. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'd say, uh, you know, the first four years of the business, we've very much been on the most early change curve. Um, mm-hmm. So the really, really early adopters are the people who have maybe you know a bit more successful big incumbents are looking for the for the future. Um, yeah. And I think what we're seeing over the last six to twelve months really is that go from the first three percent to the first thirteen or twenty percent, um, yep. meaning that actually you know the work that we have done has been early adopters globally in Hong Kong and Singapore and Africa and the US and all over the place. Uh, and what you see is the maturing of each of those markets means this the way in which we're saying to go about these things becomes uh, you know more adopted therefore more and more work yeah. um so for us i see us getting you know bigger and having more impact on the consultancy side of things i think foundry as a, as a business i think could eclipse everything um mm-hmm. just because really when it comes to the technology side of things within banks it is like the 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 real fabric that holds them back 
Yeah. Um, and actually, there are there are not many players in the in the market who are are really uh, aggressively and as boldly uh, approaching fixing that as we are. Cool. Um, so I think the the way in which we've approached that with the partnership with with DMB um, mm. really gives not only a good idea but the practical application against a very large organization. Which mm. uh, you know we all say it, it never really matters until it's been deployed and deployed at scale for financial services. So yeah. for me, I, I see uh, this problem is not <clears throat> going to be going away anytime soon. Uh, you know, we might get to two percent at some point, but uh, mm. it's only going to be a lot with a lot of hard work. Great. Uh, I mean, that's fantastic. We, we, we've run through everything I sort of had on my list there. Um, I guess one thing I always ask is if you see a sort of way back to, to the ways of before, you know, isolation and remote working and things like that. I mean, do, do you think that certainly will irrevocably change the way we kind of approach business models and banking and, and um, technology I mean, use? I'd say, um, I'd say that, I mean, the beautiful thing, I mean, Corona is obviously a, a horrific thing that's going to happen and there's lots of people of kind of losing their lives. I think if anything, it's sharply focused for financial services, that digital is no longer optional. Um, yes. You know, the idea of, um, you know, the immediate announcements around, you know, help or SME funding, you know, mm. go into your branch and talk to, wait, no, you can't leave your house. Okay, mm. wait, we can't do processes. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, that is uh, a very difficult reality to face into. Um, so, I, so I hope people's memories are very long on this one, that actually mm. digital now is the way, not yep. a way that they can invest in. Um, yeah. And because of that, actually, I, I see a real um, galvanizing, you know, a real acceleration of the work that the type of work that we do, um, mm. because if anybody coming out of this realizes that uh, or thinks that the Internet or digital uh, is no longer a thing that they they think about, then um, then I think there's there's probably a pretty pretty bad future ahead for them. Yeah, that would be troubling. <laughs> it would it would be yeah. a, a troubling one. But you don't rule it out, right? You know, people yeah, are yeah. holding on to uh, you know branch networks and all sorts of stuff for, yeah, for yeah, a really absolutely. long period of time. Yeah. But I, I think the the key to that though is that I think people have seen digital and human as mm. different ends of yeah, a continuum, yeah. and the reality is that. If you do digital in the in the right way, it might be the most human channel that you have mm -hmm. to offer mm -hmm. people. Definitely the most consistent human experience that you can offer people. Yeah. Um, and actually, I think getting that right means that you've got a operational efficiency in the business that you've never really seen before. And if you can deploy that against tens of millions of customers, like many of the big incumbents do have, then mm -hmm. that actually is a a very bright recipe for success. Great. Look, that's great. Um... Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time this morning. Um, happy we've covered everything. Thank you so much. Stay safe, look after yourself and, and hope to see you soon. Thanks. See you later.